Thank you, Carl, and good morning, and we're glad you're here today, and this is a great month of the year for the church and the Church of Jesus Christ and the church here at Boca Raton, and we're looking forward to our Easter services, and we encourage you to invite people. This is a time of year that is probably the easiest to have people come to church, even more than Christmas. Sometimes at Christmas, they have other events. There are no other events in people's lives around Easter time. In fact, they don't even know what day it is, so you got to tell them what day it is. But Elizabeth and I have been praying uh, for three different couples, and all three have said they're coming. So we invited them and, and all the rest. So we're going to fill a row up here. You can fill a row wherever you're at, whether it's at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock, or if you have people coming to both, come to both services because you can worship in one and you can be praying for the people you've brought in the other. It doesn't matter. We want to fill this place up. And as Carl said, help us be encouragers, be volunteers. But if you're not volunteer, you're still an encourager that day. There will be hundreds and hundreds of people here at church that day that won't normally be here. So we are all deputized to be helpers. We're all deputized to be hospitable, to say hello, to welcome people, because it's important to do that. So don't assume that they come, just go and be, don't be afraid to say, hey, are you new? We'd love to invite you. Do you need help to find a place? Whatever it is. And even if they say they've been here for five years, don't worry about that. I get embarrassed doing that too. So it's a great opportunity and we're glad you're here. We've been talking, we started last week about the places of Easter. And we're gonna continue that topic today. Last week we talked about the upper room. Today we're gonna to talk about the city, the city of Jerusalem, that such an important city that uh, Jesus prayed over. We're gonna talk about that in a few minutes. Next week we're gonna talk about the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. There's two gardens in our storyline over the next few weeks. This is the garden of Gethsemane, the garden of olives, the olive press, and we're gonna talk about that. And then on Good Friday we'll continue the talk on obviously the hill and talk about the cross and then on Easter, uh, the empty tomb and the other garden that was there, the garden where Jesus rose from the dead. And then we're gonna continue for two more weeks afterwards and continue the Easter story looking at two words, the road. Jesus did a lot of walking and he did a lot of walking afterwards and some great things happened as he walked afterwards. And then we're gonna look at the world at the end, the last week uh, of this Easter time. So please come and be a part. And the other thing is, I just want to say thank you. We're not going to talk a lot about offerings and tithes and things like that as we get to Easter because there'll be a lot of visitors. But I just want to say thank you to you. You're the regular attenders. And those of you online, a big thank you for your giving over the last few months. You have been incredible during this time. We've done extra giving for Ukraine. Over $105,000 were raised to get over there. And that's just a fantastic thing. And that's over and above our regular giving. So I just want to say a big thank you. We don't thank a lot of times. And I'm, gratitude for me is a very important uh, characteristic. And I want to say thank you to all of you as you participate in giving to the church. And again, thank you for what you might do over the coming weeks. And we're not going to talk a lot about it as we have a lot of visitors. And visitors, visitors think we only talk about money in church. And we don't. So, but I want to say thank you for all that you do. Now today I've asked Matthew McDaniel to open up the word for us in this whole area of the city. So Matthew, come on up. And I just want to say, Matthew and Jana, 
lead a Bible study. And on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock, we have four adult Bible studies. If you want to get into the Word before church at 9 a.m., there are four great studies. They meet across the street. So if you go to the other building, you can park here and walk across or park there and walk back afterwards. And they lead one of the great ones, Generations. But if you're not involved in a Bible study on Sunday morning, and you would like to be, 9 o'clock from 9 to 10, then you can walk over. There are four different studies, and they can tell you, but Matthew leads a great one. Matthew, thank you for opening the Word. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now, just small correction, Pastor Bill. Sorry. It's not one of the great ones. It is the great one. It is the great one. Just kidding. There, there are some fantastic teachers, fantastic groups, and a lot of uh, learning going on on Sunday morning. So it is, uh, it, if you're not aware of that, or if you have just been held, holding off, I encourage you to jump in because there's some great things happening during that nine o'clock hour. You know, another comment about Easter, one of the biggest hardships with us as Christians on Easter Sunday is you may arrive at church and realize somebody is sitting in your seat. <laughs> so I just want to warn you, there probably will be somebody sitting in your seat, so be flexible, show a little hospitality, and then bend a little bit just for that day so that uh, you don't give them the evil eye and cause them to run for cover. <laughs> this morning, I want to talk about the city, and it's a passage that we're very, very familiar with because we all remember the palm fronds and the cloaks and the donkey, and it's a story we have heard from childhood. How many of you heard the story? Oh, the rest of you are not being honest this morning. Uh, most of us have heard the story, and my concern always with familiar stories is that we go numb, and we say, oh, I've heard this, or oh, yes, I remember, or your mind goes back to uh, Sunday school class. So I want us to kind of re-engage a little bit in the city as we're looking at this season of Easter. Now, I'm a big fan of the season. Uh, not so much about the bunnies and the chocolates and the peeps, but I am excited about the season because I think sometimes as modern Christians, we forget the calendar of events that is happening here. And sometimes we jump right over, uh, Pastor Bill used the word, we kind of airdrop into Easter Sunday and then we jump out. And I, I want us to pause and I appreciate Pastor Bill spreading this out so that we can, as a, as a congregation, reflect on the events of history. Uh, and these are significant events. Maybe some of you can take a moment to kind of think through what are the big historical moments in your life? What are the big historical moments in our country's life recently? You know, we may go back to very significant events like the bombing of Pearl Harbor, or we may go to any of the particular events of maybe the space shuttles exploding on either takeoff or return. Maybe we visualize the towers falling. Maybe we see the loved one who was just diagnosed with COVID. Maybe we think about the invasion of Ukraine even currently, and we think all of these massive, life-changing, culture-changing, history-changing events. Pastor Bill mentioned it last week, and I want to come back to it, that there is no more significant event in human history than the events that unfold this week in, in Christians' lives, Christians' memory. When Jesus comes into the city and he ends in the grave, there's no more significant events in human history than those. And so it'd be wise for us as Christians, people who claim to love the Lord, who love the word, and who love our Christian faith, it is wise for us to stop and reflect. And when we reflect on history, we're not just looking back and saying, oh, those are great memories. We're reflecting on the history. We're remembering, we're trying to lock those images into our brain. 
We're perhaps repenting of things that we, that we realize as that's coming to light for us and rejoicing because of the great things that God has done and hopefully in the, in the end responding in appropriate ways to go out and do what the Lord has, has taught us through history. This morning we're going to look at the city. I encourage you to open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. I'm going to end there or I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to start several chapters back. This morning I want to look at several things with you. First, I want to look at the pilgrimage that Jesus is making to the city. In Luke chapter 19, that's really where the entry into the city is recorded by Luke. But the inauguration, the beginning of that that, uh, event, really happens 10 chapters earlier in Luke's writings. Luke is in chapter 19, or excuse me, in chapter 9, he is 150 miles north of the city of Jerusalem in an area called Caesarea Philippi. And it's there in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus, among his disciples, asks, who do they say that I am? And who do they say Jesus is? They say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know what? I forgot to pray, so I'm going to stop. So let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we come to you this morning thankful. God, even remembering that thought, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, we praise you as that this morning. But Father God, we come to you and we ask for your work in us today. We ask that your spirit would come and speak to us. We ask that you would change our hearts and our minds, that you would open up this familiar passage in a way that uh, would be new to us perhaps in some way, that we'd be challenged in some way that maybe we haven't been, that we would leave change because of the time we spent here. And we look forward to that this morning. We pray that in Christ's precious name. Amen. So there in Caesarea Philippi, 150 miles north of Jerusalem, Jesus talking with his disciples, hears them confess, you are the Christ. And you would think that if any of us were in that situation where people finally understand and truly identify who we are, you would think that we would uh, applaud that or ride that wave of excitement. But instead, Jesus begins in Luke chapter 9, he begins instructing his disciples, hey, this is is what's going to happen here in in the days, weeks, months to come. I'm going to be betrayed to the religious leaders. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. But three days later, I'm going to rise again. As you look through chapter 9 of the book of Luke, three times he says, the Son of Man is about to suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. All that was written of the Son of Man will happen in the city of Jerusalem. And there towards the end of chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, it says, now that his time had come, When the days had drawn near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the pilgrimage for Jesus begins there in Luke chapter 9. It will extend all the way through the the 10 chapters leading up to chapter 19. But Luke wants us to see that at this point in time, Jesus is making not just a geographical comment. He's not just saying, I'm heading to Jerusalem. But we see Jesus committing to his purpose in life, and that is to suffer and to die. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to himself and to the Father, Father, my eyes are focused on you and my purpose, and my purpose is to go to Jerusalem, to suffer, to die, to be raised again, to be seated at your right hand, to receive all the rewards of the first son so that I might hand them off to the people of God. It's a great story that, God, that, that Christ is committing to, and we'll see through the course of these events that he is obedient to that, even to the point of death on the cross. 
I love how Luke records it particularly because Luke seems to be a more detailed guy. And he'll, he'll tell you to say, he says to us that he's writing these things in particular order so we can see how they play out. But as you're looking through the geographical marks through cha- from chapter 9 down to chapter 19, he mentions Caesarea Philippi. Then he mentions Jesus is going between Samaria and Galilee. And then he mentions that Jesus is in Jericho. And then he makes the turn to go up the, the hill into the city of Jerusalem. And he's there at the, the crest of the hill on, uh, near Bethpage and Bethany. And it's in this moment of time that the story becomes very, very familiar with us because it's there that he sends the disciples to get the donkey. And that's where I want to pick up in Luke chapter 19 with you. In Luke chapter 19, let's pick up together in verse 28. I just want to read the, uh, the account. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is now in Jericho coming up the, up the hill to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found, uh, excuse me, those uh, who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and they were untying the colt. Its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? I think it's a little bit understated here because I think if someone was stealing my ride, I think I would be a little bit more uh, miffed than, than that. Why are, you annoying the, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their, colt, their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so we move from this picture of the pilgrimage of Jesus to the city onto the actual people outside the city. And I think it's interesting in the midst of this that, that we have this uh, wonderful scene if you, if you read the gospel accounts, the other Mark and, uh, Mark and Matthew both speak about the same progression. There are crowds of people following Jesus, and there are crowds of people coming out of the city to meet Jesus. And it's at this moment that Jesus is cresting the hill that this amazing conflict happens. Jesus on a donkey, being praised by some, being cursed by the others. And there's two crowds that I want to focus on here because they become so apparent in this passage in particular. On one hand, we have the praisers, and they are shouting with palm fronds in hand, having laid down their cloaks. They're praising and shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I wonder what they were thinking. I wonder if they were thinking, wow, the guy next to me is yelling, so I'm going to yell. I wonder who started it. I wonder if maybe some of the religious leaders who had now believed in Jesus, who knew the prophecies of old, I wonder if they had stirred the crowd up to start. I wonder if these faithful who were shouting out, blessed is the king, who were, I wonder if they really understood that Jesus was the redeemer and not just the son of David who had come and delivered them from Rome. 
I wonder what was going on in their minds, but no doubt we have this amazing scene of crowds. Uh, Luke records earlier that there were thousands following him. What if there were thousands coming out of the city to meet him? We have a, a huge body of people coming down this, uh, this ravine, which is probably an echo chamber of sorts if you've been there. It's not too far from the Mount of Olives across to Jerusalem. No doubt there were echoes of sounds of people screaming and yelling. And I tried it in my mind. I think, what would it have been like? What would it have, would it have been like to be there to hear to feel that compulsion to throw my robe down or to wave a palm front or to shout with the masses, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew is very particular in his record here where he says this, was, this happened to fulfill the promise that was made in the book of Zechariah. Now, if you want to turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9, you can feel free to do so. I'm going to read from the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9. Matthew quotes it in particular, Luke doesn't reference it, but the prophet Zechariah writes this, Zechariah 9, verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. We'll come back to peace in a second. His rule shall be from the sea to the sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pits. Love that. That's Zechariah speaking years beforehand. I wonder if some of the people in the crowd knew that. They remembered it. Maybe that day even the spirit triggered in their brains, wait a second, this is Jesus who has been doing amazing works throughout the world or throughout the region. This is the Jesus we keep hearing about. This is the prophet that we think might be the promised one. This is, this is Jesus on a coal. Hey, wait a second, I remember hearing about that red in the synagogue not too, not too long ago. Is this the same one from Zechariah? Is this the same one that is promised that's going to deliver us from Rome? Is this the same king that we've been waiting for? And they start cheering and yelling and shouting. I wonder. I wonder if it's in that moment that the religious leaders who are there in the crowd are thinking they are quoting from or referencing Zechariah. You know, part of the cheers of the people also came from Psalm 118. And you should write that down, Psalm 118. I encourage you to go back and read it later because it is a fantastic psalm that brings in this blessed is the, name, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But were the religious leaders thinking, okay, what's, what's going on here? At the very end of that paragraph that I read back from Luke chapter 19, we see the other group of people that are in the crowd. The faithful are on the one side shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. On the other side, we see Pharisees frustrated that, well, I'm reading into it a little bit, frustrated. They've been described as jealous already in the Gospels. They did not like the power that Jesus was possessing. Perhaps they saw that he was kind of coming in line with some of the prophecies and they didn't like it very much. But somehow in the midst, and if, kind of picture the moment, you have Jesus on a colt, He's riding, so he's physically above everybody, right? People are yelling, screaming, shouting, uh, crying out. There's a loud noise, and somehow in the midst of this, Jesus hears some of his naysayers say, Teacher, 
rebuke your disciples. So in the midst of this crowd of praise, there is a group of people that have totally rejected everything that Jesus was bringing. And their voices come out too, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now what would have happened if Jesus at that moment would have used his outside voice and said, hey, hush, right? He could do that, right? He hushed the Sea of Galilee when it was storming. He can certainly hush the crowd. And what if he would have hushed the crowd? Jesus says, if I do, even the rocks will cry out. Even the rocks will cry out. Why? As Pastor Bill talked about last week, his time had come. There have been multiple times in Jesus' life when his time had not yet come, and he made, a, made it clear in that way. Even earlier in, uh, the chap- in chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, realizing that the people might take and make him uh, king by force, or that they were looking for the kingdom of God to come immediately, Jesus kind of backed away for the moment rather than allowing him to take on the position of authority. Why? Because his time had not yet come. In this time, the culmination of redemptive history, Jesus' time had come. And he knew that even if the people hushed, all of creation would rejoice because he was, in fact, the king who was blessed, who was coming in the name of the Lord to make all things right, to offer himself as a redemptive sacrifice. Why? To cleanse us from our sins and make us right with the Father. That work that God had initiated centuries before, generations before, this one would come to give us peace. Well, he would come to give us peace. So we see this interesting pilgrimage leading to this combination of of, uh, praise and scowl. And in the midst of this, probably the most uh, amazing event of of this whole scene, and it's Christ's prayer for the city. Look with me again in Luke chapter 19 and in verse 41. It says, and when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. The word wept means sob. It means wail uncontrollably. So again, I want to hear what it was like. I hear cries, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And other gospels, Hosanna in the highest, right? We, we hear those voices. We hear the Pharisees crying out. Have, these, just, have them just zip it, stop. This is wrong. And in the midst of that, Jesus sees and he breaks down in tears, weeping. And I ask the question, Lord, why do you weep? And he weeps because of people. His prayer is, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. At the end of that paragraph, he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is wrapped up in grief because of people missing his presence. In the middle of this crowd of praise, Jesus is heartbroken over people. I couldn't help but notice the video. You watched it. But did you see people in it? Did you see people hurting? Did you see people breaking? Did you see people crying? I I can't conceive of a world where my house has been blown up. But sometimes we watch the news and we are distracted by the chaos of the war. 
I think Jesus' example reminds us that it's the people that matter. Because in this midst of the moment where Jesus could have been totally focused and appropriately so on his own glory, right? His time had come. It was fully appropriate for the crowds to worship him. But in that moment, what did he do? In that moment, he wept over people. And what was the prayer? I'm weeping because you've missed the peace that I have to offer. Now, for me, there is no greater fruit of the Spirit than peace. If you could hear the story of God's grace in my life, it is a story of God's hope and a story of God's peace. I've talked to you before about uh, hope. But to me, when I was was a child in in elementary school, middle school, high school, the last thing that I had as as a Christian was peace. My dad was a pastor. I grew up in, around church, in in church. I was always considered myself a Christian in that sense. But what I did not have is a sense of hope. I did not have a sense of peace. Why? Because I was fully convinced that any time I would sin, God would stop loving me. And his love and devotion to me was dependent upon my action and my works towards him. And it wasn't until I realized that Jesus died on the cross so that I could be reconciled to the Father. And in that, I have hope and I have peace. It has totally changed, it totally changed my life when I came to realize that. And God's peace is continuing to be the regular uh, column of confidence in my life because every time I'm in a place where I have to make a decision about something, I, I look for God's peace. I look for his peace, a sense of rest on my spirit. You know, when I graduated from the University of Arizona, go Wildcats, uh, I had great intentions of doing a lot of interesting things. I had been in pre-medicine pursuit initially. I ended up with a degree in communications and religious studies, was uh, doing well in retail management, and God called me to ministry. And uh, thanks to my father-in-law who's sitting here this morning, he invited me to minister with him, and I pastored for 16 years in Tucson. each moment of those ter- transitions from, from graduation to retail work, from business work to ministry, it was a step of peace. It was, this feels right, God. When Jan and I started praying about possibly leaving Tucson for other ministry opportunities, it was God's peace that led us to take a pastorate in Northeast Ohio. It was that sense of calm that, okay, this is right for now. And again, five years later, when we were looking at another possible transitions, we started praying about coming to work with Jana's family here in Tucson or in Florida. And what was it? It was peace. It was, I don't necessarily understand, but God, I rest in you. And God, and God has blessed me with a sense of peace in the midst of decisions. And we know that peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. And I love that. Granted, the other fruits are fantastic things, but it's peace that I want to experience and I want to exhibit. I don't want to be the hyperspastic Christian that is wandering aimlessly around in anxiety. I want to be the one that says, okay, I know my God and I trust my God and he is guiding me here and he's giving me the peace and so I'm going to rest. And, I've, and God has blessed me with the ability to rest in the midst of t- tough life decisions at times. But peace is really what jumps off the page at me here. Jesus, remember last week, Pastor Bill 
ended chapter 16 of the, of the Upper Room Discourse, and it says, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that what? That you may have my peace. This event actually happens earlier in the week, right? So kind of calendar-wise, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, so we're a little bit ahead of time. The upper room, happen, upper room happened on Thursday of the last week. So we're jumping back in time here to the, the first day of the week, Sunday, leading up to Calvary, That's uh, calendar-wise. But it's this peace that Jesus sees as he's coming over. If you would have known the things that make for peace, Jesus would say, I said these things that you might have peace. The crowds are shouting what? Peace? in heaven and glory in the highest. And immediately my brain goes back to, and hopefully it does you in Luke chapter two, where the shepherds are out in the wilderness. It's dark and the angels shout from heaven. What do they shout? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. And I think of Isaiah saying he is the prince of peace. And I think of Isaiah 26 saying those who are steadfast in mind, the steadfast in mind, you will keep in perfect peace because they trust in you. Micah the prophet speaking about where Jesus would be born, saying this one who was born in Bethlehem, this one would be our peace. The Apostle Paul writes that in Christ we have an indescribable a peace, a peace that surpasses all comprehension. And if I could just take a moment and try to explain that peace, I couldn't. Why? Because it's incomprehensible. It is a peace that surpasses our comprehension, but it guards us in Christ Jesus. The greatest example, picture, portrait of peace, I think is in Romans chapter five. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In Christ, friends, we have peace. There's a reconciled relationship with the Father. There's no other way to reconcile with the Father but through peace or but through the work of Christ who gives us peace. The pilgrim of Jesus is amazing in that he is focused on the work of the Father, to go to Jerusalem despite the distractions and despite the fear of what would come when he gets there. The crowds of people praising and uh, arguing over the person of Jesus on the hillside is amazing. In the midst of that, Jesus' prayer. But I want to kind of end with a couple things that we should challenge ourselves with regards to perspective. What perspective should we have coming out of our reflection uh, on the city? The first is we need to maintain a focus on doing God-glorifying work. You know, Jesus, Jesus didn't come just to be a good example for us, right? He was a good teacher, yes. He was a good leader, yes. He was a great discipler and multiplier of his work, Yes, but Jesus did not come simply for those things. Jesus came to die on the cross to redeem us, to reconcile us with the Father so that we might receive the inheritance in glory. But his example of clear, focused work on what the Father had given him to do is, uh, is uh, mind-boggling, and we should reflect on that as Christians. As we think of Jesus traveling these weeks, maybe months, maybe longer, from Caesarea Philippi down to Jerusalem. He is focused on that work despite the many distractions that would, were coming upon him. I encourage you this week, since next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and that's the Sunday that we really celebrate the entrance of the city, 
If you start in Luke chapter 9, verse 51 uh, tomorrow, read about 67 verses, which is about a chapter and a half every day. That'll take you up to Palm Sunday for next week. I encourage some of you to do that just so you can kind of track the course of Jesus as he's heading towards the city. So you'll end up on the triumphal entry next week. But Jesus is focused on this work. And I think to myself, what is it that God has called me to do? What has God called you to do? In the biggest picture, God has called you as a Christian to reflect his character in whatever you're doing. So if you're saying to yourself, I really don't know what God wants me to do with your life, let me tell you, God wants you to glorify him by reflecting his character in whatever you're doing, whether it's in your parenting or your marriage or your workplace or your community ministry or your involvement in church, God wants you to reflect his character in whatever you're doing because that's why we're here. We're here to be conformed to the image of his son, right, so that we might reflect his glory to a world that watches us. So God's will for you is reflect his glory. Are you focused on that? Do you think about that as you go through your day? Do you think about how do I, how do I, how's God being honored in the way that I'm responding in this moment? Jesus was a great example of staying focused on his work. Just this morning in my time with the Lord, I was reading, Jesus says to his disciples, we must do the work that the Father has given me while it is daylight. It's that focus on God-glorifying work that I want us to to bring out this morning. So what is it this morning that God is calling you to do in specific? What is God calling you besides the big call of glorify God in all that you do? Specifically, what does God have for you to do? And are you focused on it? Is there something leading you off course in in that work? I want to challenge you to be focused in actively pursuing God-glorifying work in your life. The second thing I see here is we need to develop an undistracted passion for people. Uh, Jesus was a people lover. He loved people. He lived for people. If you look at his life, his life is riddled with distractions. Everywhere he turned, somebody wanted his attention. And every time his attention was turned, what did he do? He gave his attention to people. And here in this example of prayer, he in the midst of this Massive throng of praise, loud, chaotic, everything. He could have been swept up, and you and I would have been swept up in the emotion of the moment. He still comes back to people. And I encourage you, I challenge us to remember in the midst of everything we're doing, remember the people that are being impacted by the things that we're doing. Remember, look at the person across from you that you're talking to. You know, even in this moment now, it's very tempting for me to talk to a crowd. The reality is I'm talking to people, individuals who are children, who are daughters, who are sons, who are uncles, aunts, who are grandparents, who are great-grandparents. We are people who have stories that are being impacted by God, and we need to carry that as we go out. Why? Jesus was a people person. We need to be passionate passionate about uh, the people in our lives, undistracted, just like Jesus was. The last thing, and you've heard this from me before in the, in the handful of sermons that I've uh, you know, given even here, we need to uh, increase our awareness of God and his work around us. Uh, it is so easy to miss God. Jesus' prayer is, if only you had seen the things that make for peace, in this day, the day that I am visiting you, you missed me. And that day was quite obvious, wasn't it? 
Jesus was coming. He was fulfilling a prophecy. He was on a donkey. The crowds were yelling. It was a no-brainer. This guy is something else. And in the midst of all of that, what did the Pharisees do? They missed it. And Jesus' prayer is not just for the Pharisees. Jesus' prayer is for the city. But the city missed it. The city missed his visitation. I don't want to be somebody that's, that's going through my life missing God. Because God is active. He's alive, right? He's moving. He's speaking. He's, he's, uh, he's driving. He's moving pieces around. He is orchestrating the events of time. And you and I are in the middle of that. And sometimes we're totally oblivious to him. And I want us to be people who have an increased awareness that God is at work in me. God is work around me. He is in work, at work in the people around me. And he is driving the events of time towards a great end. And we need to ride along with him and give him the appropriate glory for all the great work he's doing. There's some great lessons to be learned out of the city. It's much more than a donkey and a palm frond and, and a cloak. Um, but in the weeks that come, when your kids bring the palm fronds home, remind them what the real story of, of the triumphal entry is. It's the king, and he's coming. And we can praise him for that. Let's pray. Father, we honor you. God, it's amazing that you have orchestrated the events of time the way that you have. That from aeons past, you didn't just know what would happen, you orchestrated what would happen. And you put the pieces in place to bring about moments in time like this one, this entry into the city. And God, I praise you for your greatness in that way. I praise you, Father, for the way that you provided your son at the right time. And at the right time, he was uh, delivered over. And at the right time, he died on the cross. And at the right time, he was raised. And at the right time, he was seated at your right hand. And at the right time, he was beneficiary of all of the blessings of sonship. And we are the beneficiaries of that incredible gift. I thank you, Father, that you are a great God. I thank you that through your spirit, you give us peace. I thank you for Jesus, for our King, for our Messiah. He being the Son of God and the Son of Man, he is the Savior of the world and he is Savior of me. I thank you, Father, for that. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just look at this story as a nice story to remember, but, God, that we reflect on the, the example that Jesus sets of being a man focused on glorifying you. That, God, we would be people like him that love people and are thinking of people and looking at people and speaking to people. I pray, God, that we would be men and women who see you. We see you acting. We see you moving. We see you speaking. I pray, God, that we would be moved by that, that, we would not be the people that we were yesterday and we're thankful that we're not the people we were 10 years ago. But God, you are ushering us on to greater Christ-likeness. I pray that we would go along in that process. And Lord in heaven, I pray for those today who are here that maybe are visiting, maybe they, they're, they're new to the gospel, they're new to Christianity, they think it's a good season to go to church. I pray, Father, that you would work in their spirit to open their eyes to what it is to mean, what it means to be saved. And God, that you would work in them even in this moment. That as we wrap up here, they would come down, they would speak to someone, they would ask the question, what does this mean? What, what do I do? And I pray, God, that you would bring them to life. 
Lord God, we look to you as the great guide and the great leader and the great provider and the, and the great shepherd. I pray that you would change us as we follow you. And we pray these things in your son's precious and holy and wonderful and awesome and blessed name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.